have your Bible, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. Uh, if you're a Bible marker, I encourage you to mark your Bibles. Uh, if you're not, don't. Uh, there's a uh, there's a pew Bible in right in front of you. That's the red one, and the red book there, the really shiny red book. I guess there's two red books there. And we're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. During the Reagan administration, uh, George Shultz was the Secretary of State. And apparently he kept a big globe in his office. When newly appointed ambassadors came to be interviewed, Shultz would typically test them every time they came in. He would say, go over to the globe and prove to me that you can identify your country. And they would go over and spin the globe and they would point to the country to which they were being sent. When Mike Mansfield was appointed ambassador to Japan, he was put to the same test. But this time, Mansfield spun the globe, stopped it, and placed his finger on the United States of America. And he said, that is my country. Years later, when Schultz was being interviewed on C-SPAN, he said, I told this story subsequently to all the ambassadors that were going out from that time on. Never forget over there in that country that you're going to that you're representing the United States. Take care of our interests And never forget that. Brothers and sisters, that's instructive for us. Philippians 3.20 tells us that our citizenship is not here, but it is in heaven. We should spin the globe and not place our finger on the United States of America. But on the kingdom of God. We represent God's kingdom here on earth. It was so wonderful to hear how Mike introduced the, the worship service this morning. We must put that kingdom's interests above all else and spread it all over this globe. And here in our text, Jesus shows us not only that the gateway into citizenship into that kingdom, but also how to live as members of that kingdom. Look with me at verse 24 in chapter 17 in the Gospel of Matthew and listen to God's word. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the true drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said this, from others. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. All the synoptic gospels, Peter's confession of 
Jesus being the Christ is that linchpin, is a turning point. It happens in Mark 8, it happens in Luke 9, and it happened back in chapter 16 in Matthew. And from that point forward, from Peter's confession forward, things begin to change in the Gospels. First of all, he is much more open, Jesus is much more open about his mission to come and be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and suffer and die and be raised again. He's much more verbal with that. As a matter of fact, if you just glance up at the preceding verse, he had just told his disciples for the second time. And he'll tell them again in a couple chapters. And again in a couple more chapters. We also begin to see, after Peter's confession, that he's more pointed at teaching about the end of the age, the end that's coming. We see that he t- tells parables about the, the wedding feast and of the virgins and of the talents. He, in chapters 24 and 25, he's going to expound uh, uh, very didactically teaching about his second coming. And the final change we see after Peter's confession is that he's much more explicit about who he is. God incarnate. We see that right off the bat with the transfiguration, right? Almost right after Peter's, Peter's confession, he is transfigured before them. He, he shows who he really is, gives them a glimpse of the glory that he set aside to come down, the Philippians 2 glory that he set aside. We see that in his triumphal entry. And we see it in little ways all sprinkled all throughout Matthew's gospel to the end. And one of those little ways is in this interchange with Peter right here. This confusing little interchange between Peter and Jesus. It seems to offer more questions than answers, doesn't it? Like, what is this two drachma tax that they're talking about? And how did Jesus know about this conversation? Or why did Jesus ask such a kind of a nonsensical or non-sequitur question to Peter? And what sons is, is, is Jesus talking about? And what about this miracle? I mean, it seems that the setting of that miracle is more in a Las Vegas, David Copperfield type of, of magic show than, than what Jesus typically done. So why would Matthew record such a strange interchange? I think it's to help us understand a couple things about our citizenship here on earth. And the first thing he wants us to understand is that Jesus is the gateway into this citizenship that we call Christ. Matthew is the only gospel writer that that records this narrative. It's unique to Matthew. And I think that makes a little sense because if you remember who Matthew is, he is the disciple who was called out of what occupation? Out of tax collecting. So his previous occupation perhaps helped him to remember this particular interchange with Jesus on taxation. This two drachma tax has its roots back in Exodus 30, where God instructed Moses to instruct the people that there would be an annual tax. Each male 20 years and older would give a shekel towards maintaining the tabernacle. The tabernacle has physical needs of maintenance. And later, the temple. 
So this tax was to help the tabernacle and later the temple to be maintained. So the temple tax collector asked Peter, does, does your rabbi pay the tax? Is he somehow outside of, of the, the authority of this tax? And Peter replies that yes, he actually pays the tax. And Peter returns to the house and Jesus, using the Socratic method that he always used, asks a question to draw out a truth. Look at verses 25 and 26 with me. Peter comes back to the house and he addresses him. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. The sons are free. You see, taxes of uh, kings of old used to used to pay, um, levy taxes on people. Poll tax, road tax, customs taxes. But their own family was exempt from that tax. As a matter of fact, the British monarchy is still exempt from taxes. So they, their sons, their family was exempt from this tax. Thus Jesus, as the son of God, the son of the ultimate king, is exempt from paying this tax. That's what Jesus is gently pointing out when he says, then the sons are free. The whole reason for this interchange, the whole reason that Jesus pushes in here, is that Jesus is reinforcing what Peter experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. That he is the divine, only begotten son of the living God, the king of the earth. Sent by the king to save others. In the early 20th century, the pastor named D.M. Stearns was a famous pastor. And he was preaching in Philadelphia at one time. And at the close of the service, a stranger came up to him and said, I don't like the way you spoke about the cross. Instead of emphasizing the death of Christ, it would be far better and far more effective if you preach Jesus as a good teacher and an example to follow. Stearns paused and looked at the man and thought a minute, and then said, if I presented Christ in this way, would you be willing to follow him? And he goes, the man said, of course. All right, Stern said, let's take the first step. Jesus committed no sin. Can you follow in his example? The man paused, looking confused. Stearns replied, then your greatest need is not an example, but a savior. First John 4.9 tells us this is how God showed his love among us. He, the king, sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. You see, the king sent his only son not to be a moral example, not to be a good example to follow, not so that we can see the footsteps in the snow and go, oh, if I follow those footsteps, I won't fall into the gorge. He sent his son here to be a savior that we can embrace. 
Jesus absolutely lived a perfectly sinless life. He didn't sin in word, thought, or deed. And he didn't do that so that we would be crushed by that expectation. He didn't do that so that we would look at that and and just melt away because of the expectation of living that kind of life. That's not why Jesus lived that perfect life. He came to fulfill the law that you cannot fulfill. Galatians 4 says he came, born of a woman, born under the law, to fulfill the law. To actually do what we cannot. To earn a rightness before God. To earn the, the, the ability to stand before God and not blush. And Jesus, at the end of the life, after he earned that, that ability... What he, what he did with that is he took it to the cross. Because he was now an acceptable sacrifice for God. This, this perfect lamb that the Old Testament shows us has to be offered every year. Jesus was that lamb. And he sacrificed himself. He, he let him, his body become a beating ground for our sin. You see, God is perfectly just, brothers and sisters. He's perfectly just. And your sin will either be paid by you in eternity, away from God, or in Jesus on the cross. Those are the two choices. That's the choice that every, every, the gospel places before every person. Who's going to pay for this? Somebody's got to pay. And the good news, the gospel is that the king's son, Jesus, offers to pay for you. And John 10.9 says, Jesus told the crowd that day, I, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me shall be saved. See, Jesus is the gateway into the kingdom of God. That's the good news. He's the gateway into eternal paradise, into a new kingdom. A new kingdom that he actually birthed here on earth in his death and resurrection. That, that kingdom that was referenced earlier in the service that starts out so small like a mustard seed but that goes all over the world. When you trust Jesus' work instead of your own, you switch citizenship. You no longer point to the globe. You become a gospel citizen. The missionaries who served in Laos discovered something interesting. The kings of Laos and Vietnam reached an agreement on taxation on the border areas. Those who ate short grain rice, built their houses on stilts, and decorated them in Indian-style serpents were considered Laotians. On the other hand, those who ate long grain rice, built their houses on the ground, and decorated with Chinese-style dragons were considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's home was not how they determined nationality. 
Instead, each person belonged to the kingdom whose cultures and values they exhibited. Brothers and sisters, that's really instructive for us because that's how people see us. That's how we are identified as kingdom citizens. After conversion, we continue to live in this world. We continue to live on that globe. But our citizenship is changed. And God's kingdom does not have borders. We don't congregate as Christians in a geographical area. We don't speak a different language. We don't wear certain clothes. Our skin is not a certain color. So how, how are the marks of gospel citizenry to be seen? How do you know a gospel citizen? Well, I think it's much like the difference between the Laotians and the Vietnamese. Gospel citizens are distinguished by their culture and their values. That's one of Matthew's main purposes for writing his gospel, is to tell us what the culture and values are of this upside-down kingdom that we've been placed in. That's what we've been learning about. Like valuing the next life more than this one. That's a gospel citizen mark. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where a moth and rust will destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Gospel citizenry looks much like the Beatitudes. Meekness. Poor in spirit, knowing that you need Christ. A thirst for righteousness. A peacemaker. An understanding that what comes with the name of Christ is persecution for his name's sake. That's a mark of a gospel citizen. Gospel citizens live sacrificially. They sacrifice their reputation. They turn the other cheek willingly. They love their enemies. Those who who hate and despise them and talk behind their backs. We forgive those who hurt. Gospel citizens sacrifice their pride by taking up their cross daily and following Jesus as best as they can every single day. Gospel citizens even sacrifice their lifestyle. I use this quote by C.S. Lewis in our membership class. When people ask how much people should give, C.S. Lewis said, I do not believe one can settle on how much one ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts and luxuries and amusements is up to the standard common among those of the same income as our own, we probably are giving too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There are things that we want to do but cannot do because of our sacrificial giving. 
That's the mark of a gospel citizen. One of them, anyway. Gospel citizens live radically different lives than the world around us, including the one that Jesus gives us here. A very difficult mark. Look at verse 27. Jesus goes on and says, However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. I want you to underline, if you're an underliner, however, not to give offense to them. There's the gospel principle. The very difficult gospel principle. I call this mark the molehill to mountain mark of a Christian. The molehill to mountain mark of a Christian. Brothers and sisters, we are not to make mountains out of molehills. And we do this all the time. That's what Jesus is teaching here. You see, Jesus had just proved that he does not have to pay this uh, this temple tax. He proved it. He's the son of the most high God. He is exempt. Totally unnecessary. Yet, in a miraculous way, in a miraculous way that reinforces who he is, right? He pays it anyway. And the reason he gives Peter is so as not to cause offense. That is a hard principle. That word offense there is used for the trigger on an animal trap in other places. You see, if Jesus had refused to pay this tax, they would have easily been trapped into a false conclusion that Jesus and his disciples despised the temple, despised its worship, despised its leaders, and who have created a barrier for the gospel. And that is the principle that gospel citizens have to live by. Do not cause unnecessary offense. Do not create unnecessary barriers to the gospel. And you say, well, Blake, I, I, I don't do that. That's easy. It's an easy one. It's not. It's not an easy one. Martin Luther said, softness and hardness are the two main faults from which all other mistakes of pastors come. I agree with that. But I'll expand that to say that's true of all believers. Hardness and softness. Hardness and softness. When we're too hard on an issue or too soft on an issue, we are typically causing offense. Now, to be clear, Christians will offend. Brother, sister, you will offend. The gospel in itself, when you tell somebody that they are a sinner in desperate need of forgiveness and a savior, that offends people. He's not talking about that kind of offense. Paul talks about that in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 3. He talks about the, the, to some the gospel will be a, a, a wonderful fragrance and to others the smell of death. It will offend. 
We just have to know that going in. As we strive to live pure and holy and moral lives in this globe, we will offend. Kids, listen to me. As you refrain from swearing, as you refrain from doing the things that your friends do that are sinful, like drinking and fooling around, as you refrain, it will offend them and they will exclude you because of that. You just have to know that going in. As we speak up for what the Bible speaks up, we will offend. Jesus is not talking about these things. As we stand for biblical marriage between a man and a woman, we will offend. As we say that there are actually two genders only, we will offend. As we stand for sexual boundaries, we will offend. As we stand for the unborn in the mother's womb not being aborted, we will offend. But Jesus isn't talking about those things. What Jesus is saying here, don't unnecessarily offend. Don't make mountains out of molehills. He gives us an example here that he didn't have to pay the tax. He, he could have made a stand. He was the son. He was righteous and right in saying, I don't have to pay the tax. He could have made a huge deal of it. It could have caused a huge fervor in the temple. Jeez, Rabbi Jesus isn't paying the tax. But he doesn't make a big deal of it. He pays it willingly. He didn't make a mountain out of a molehill. We see this principle throughout Scripture. We see it in 1 Corinthians 9 when, when Paul is making his, his defense and his, his case that he is an apostle and, and, and that he should be paid for doing things. He says, I, I have the right. Don't muzzle an ox. I have the right. Yet he willingly lays it all aside. And listen to how he ends that chapter. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. This is instructive for us here. That I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became a Jew in order to win the Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. He didn't make a mountain out of a molehill. So as to win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Paul willingly laid all the mountains aside. The question we have to answer is, are we willing to do too? Are we willing to do that? We see this principle in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 with food sacrifice to idols. Paul says, yeah, go ahead and eat it, it's fine. But if a, if a brother understands it to be sin, if he, under, he, he knows that meat comes from the, the buying it from the temple, the pagan temple, don't eat it if it hurts him. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. We see this in Acts 16 when Paul wanted to take Timothy on his missionary journey. 
And Timothy wasn't circumcised. And so he circumcises Timothy. Listen to how he places it in verse 3. Because of the Jews who lived there. Yet later on in his ministry in Galatians and in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, he makes an argument to not circumcise. He didn't make a mountain out of a molehill here. He did not cause unnecessary offense. He did not want to create a barrier for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about us today? What about your heart today? Are there molehills that you have made into mountains? I want you to think about that. Are there little righteousnesses that you grip really tightly? I'm right on this. And I'm not budging. Are there any things you are holding onto that could possibly be an unnecessary offense? Are there molehills in your life that are creating barriers for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I sat thinking about this a lot this week. There are so many that we're probably not even aware of most of them. There's so many molehills that we've made into mountains. It's kind of like when you visit a foreign country and you don't know you're breaking a custom until you break the custom. In church, there are areas where this principle needs to be applied all over the place, brothers and sisters. In music. Remember in the 80s and 90s, the music wars? Making mountains out of molehills. Splitting churches unnecessarily. Creating barriers for the gospel. End times views. Making mountains out of molehills. Days of creation. Spiritual gifts. Martin Luther said, Baptism is not the article upon which the church stands or falls. Tongues is not the article upon which the church stands or falls. The gospel is what stands or falls at church. Church unity stands and falls on this principle right here. But it's interesting that Jesus takes this outside of the church. Did you notice that? He takes this principle outside of the kingdom of God. So again, I ask, what molehills do we make into mountains outside the church? What barriers are we creating for the gospel? What unnecessary offenses should we be careful of? Well, we can certainly go back to the, the, the issue that he deals with right here, taxes. A lot of people make mountains out of molehills where taxes are concerned. Jesus is going to talk more specifically about that in chapter 22 when they hand him a coin and say, should you pay taxes? So we'll leave that for another day. Another area that we make mountains out of molehills in is politics. Politics. Could we be creating barriers and causing offenses by holding our view too tightly? I'm not saying that you change your views on politics, but how you relate those things and to what fervor you relate them. Politics is nothing compared to the gospel. Nothing. 
Fear and trepidation. I move into this one. How about masks? How about masks? I'm not an advocate for either side. Wear it, don't wear it. I'm not advocating for either side. But I think an honest question we have to ask is, how do you think Jesus would have handled wearing or not wearing a mask with Peter if that was the issue right here? Would he have miraculously created a mask in the fish's mouth and said to Peter, put it on? I don't know. What if the question was not taxes, but masks? Would Jesus still say those words in verse 27, however, so as not to cause offense? Brothers and sisters, my heart has struggled with this all week. All week. What keeps coming up in my mind is, am I making a mountain out of a molehill? I struggle with this very thing. When I see a business that says masks required, my heart goes, eh. I know. Because of that, I've made a mountain out of a molehill. The truth is, if we take any molehill and make it into a mountain, we lose the gospel. You lose the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are called as gospel citizens to lay aside anything and everything unnecessary that would cause offense or create a barrier to the gospel. That's the biblical truth. And I know there are some of you here saying, yeah, Blake, but. I want you to pray about that but. This might be extra biblical. In fact, I know it's extra biblical. Perhaps Peter was thinking of that time when he cast that hook in and pulled out that first fish and opened its mouth and took out that coin when he wrote the following verse in his first epistle. Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify, glorify God when the day he visits. May everything we do, everything, glorify God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your wisdom that stretches us, that challenges us, that annoys us, that forms us in ways we don't want to be formed. Lord, I just pray that you help us to lay your authority on top of our own and mold us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.